rare evenings when the entire group of organizers for Golden Beer Talks happens to be in the house. So I'm gonna go ahead and introduce the people that make this happen out of the goodness of their hearts and the depth of their energies. Um, so first, Dave Montoya over here, he works for the Buffalo Rose and he sets us up on sound. Beautifully, I might add. Dr. Jim Clausen back here, Jim. He's our beer ambassador. I am not spotting Karen Smith, but I know she's there she is. Not far behind her, Bart Sheldrake. Thank you, Bart. And, and then um, next I'm gonna bring Don up here. He is our, our envoy for breweries. And so he'll be introducing our beer tonight. And he's right over here for the moment, if you wanna give him a little, there we go. Awesome. It's just a volunteer effort and we do this because we want to learn something new and also because we believe in community and conviviality and this is a great way to have all of that. So we are really grateful for your participation because having you here is what completes that and makes it worthwhile. So thank you very much. I also want to thank the Buffalo Rose and our bartender tonight for taking such good care of us. They are, it's a great place to be able to do this and we're so grateful. We're also grateful to Barb Warden and GoldenToday.com. They do a great job of promoting our events and promoting other important happenings around town. If you're interested in signing up, that's GoldenToday.com and you can get on their email newsletter. If you'd like to be on our newsletter for Beer Talks, that's GoldenBeerTalks at gmail.com. Just send us an email or get on our website and you can easily sign up. We'll send you two emails a month. We will never share the list. So thank you very much. If you are willing to do that, we would love to keep in touch with you and let you know what we have coming up. I'm going to bring Don up. He's going to talk about these awesome beers and um, get our evening started. Here's Don Sweetkind. Thanks, Whitney. Let's see here. Okay, so about those uranium mines. Right, that was the last sheet of paper. Okay, I'm happy to introduce tonight. Uh, um, uh, our, our guest brews for tonight, which is uh, the Mountain Toad. Um, Whitney often talks in her welcome, welcoming remarks about community, and part of the reason that we're here is supporting local breweries, and Mountain Toad has been a supporter of us um, from early on, and we like to cycle through our local breweries, and this is the first time since moving across the street here that we've been able to have uh, Mountain Toad uh, in the building here, so we're very pleased that uh, uh, that they uh, agreed to uh, uh, bring the beers over. It seems like Mountain Toad has been around forever, um, but they opened in May of 2013, um, uh, right around the time that Golden Beer Talk started as well. And the four founders of Mountain Toad are all School of Mines grads. Um, as a Mines grad myself, that makes them special to me. And but the other night when we were there tasting, they had a School of Mines Foundation party going on. So they have a, um, some community involvement, in, and, uh, which makes them interesting. These founders left corporate America to start Mountain Toad. Um, they don't really specialize in any specific kind of a style of beer. Instead, the owners uh, say they make carefully crafted American brews in a range of styles. Uh, so you can try a variety of beers uh, when you're over there, and every Thursday the brewery features a small batch release. So for tonight, they provide us with two beers, and one is an IPA. It's the Huel Melon IPA. It's got an ABV of 6.5 and an IBU of 55, so it's, it's, it's not all that bitter. If you know Mountain Toad, uh, you probably know their customer favorite IPA, which is the Mount Zion IPA, which uses five different hops to give it that distinct West Coast bitterness. Uh, but for this Huel Melon IPA, they've taken things in a little different directions uh, through the use of Huel hops. Um, and these hops are bred at the Hope Research Institute in Huel, Germany. And this hop lends notes of honeydew melon, uh, and it makes it a little more citrusy and full-bodied uh, IPA, dry and perfectly bitter. Um, we had a little bit of a switch out on our second beer when we tasted. We had picked a brown beer, which was a sweet potato ale, which was 
interesting and, and um, uh, very good. Uh, but a last minute substitution is their uh, Ryrish Stout, uh, which is a very nice, it's a lower alcohol, full bodied dark beer, ABV of 6.4 and IBU of, of 62. Uh, which is a little higher for a brown beer. It's very drinkable, and they, they add rye, which is added for spiciness and, spiciness, and it adds some notes of chocolate uh, and of coffee. And then they finish it off with Chinook hops to add bitterness. So those are two. Um, as a scientist, I, I, would, I would encourage you, um, the best way to make a choice between the two is to drink both of them tonight. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy those. And. Now, as, as has become our tradition here at Beer Talks, we, we um, like to have someone introduce the speaker who is, is a, a personal colleague or, or can add some, uh, some information for you. And so I bring up um, Claire, Claire's colleague, Joan. Um, she has an uh, MSW, Master of Social Work. And she has been a, a practiced as a therapist in Boulder for quite a number of years. And she's been a colleague of, of Claire's for quite a number of years. She could probably give this talk, but uh, we're very pleased to, to have her introduce uh, Claire. So Joan. Thank you. Um, well, it's my pleasure to introduce Claire this evening. Uh, Claire is a psychiatrist in private practice in Denver and a national educator in professional ethics for the field of psychiatry. Claire grew up in San Francisco and later moved to Philadelphia for college and to study medicine. After completing her training at Jefferson University Medical School in Philadelphia, Claire made the decision to do her psychiatric residency in Colorado. It was during this time that she recognized Colorado as being her true home. We first met through a shared clinical experience. She treated an individual, I treated the couple, during which time we developed a mutual respect for one another. Claire has an innate curiosity about life experiences and how they inform our individual responses. Her interests are far-reaching. She co-authored the book, Living in Limbo, Creating Structure and Peace When Someone You Love is Ill. This is a book grounded in the recognition that when a loved one is diagnosed with serious illness or disability, your whole life changes. I can say that I wished for a copy of a book like this when I went through that experience four years ago. Later, we both gave presentations at a conference on grief and loss. Last year, in this series, the Golden Beer Talks, Claire presented a talk on the immune responses to stress and loss. This evening, Claire has chosen to speak about the underlying dynamics of misogyny, especially as these dynamics pertain to the experience of shame. This kind of information has the potential to change us. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Claire Zilber. Thank you so much, Joan. My inspiration for this talk came when I was attending a conference in Los Angeles in November of 2018 called Psychic Survival in the Face of Misogyny. The organizers of this psychoanalytic conference um, were trying to respond to the 2016 election and the Access Hollywood tapes and um, what they were seeing clinically in their patients as a result of this cultural resurgence of it being okay to talk in a demeaning way and act in a demeaning way towards women. It was an excellent conference, but it was only for psychoanalysts and other mental health providers. And I really wanted to find a way to bring the information in a less technical way to the general public. So I'm really grateful to Golden Beer Talks for allowing me to um, test this talk out on you for the first time. 
but I have to use my notes a little bit. can see this is going to be a little juggling thing. Okay. Um, so I'm going to quote Tom Digby throughout uh, the talk. He's, um, he's a professor emeritus from Springfield College and the author of um, the book I'm having technical problems, I'm sorry. He's author of the book, Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance, in which he posits that militaristic cultures like ours are based on the premise that men are valued for their abilities as warriors and women require men's protection. The word chivalry comes from the French chevalier, which is a knight on a horse. So chivalry's origins come from this war-like behavior of men and then the, what the downstream effects of women needing protection from the war-like behaviors of men. Um, so Tom Digby says that there are cultural forces that impinge on boys and men to value aggression to disavow feelings of fear, sadness, tenderness, and love. We're going to talk more about this uh, in a few minutes, about how that disavowal of part of their humanity results in misogyny. As a result of the women's movement, men know cognitively that women should be considered their equals, and yet despite this knowledge, they continue to behave as if they don't know it. Our militaristic culture perpetuates gender stereotypes and a very narrow norm for men, even as women have broken free from some of the norms that historically have constricted us. I'll review a little bit of data in this talk and we'll watch a couple of slam poetry performances. I'll introduce some thoughts about the conundrum of gender socialization as our society evolves. And then after the break, I anticipate a really lively discussion amongst all of us as we think about how to move society forward. There is a study that's um, really interesting and I encourage you to look it up online, The State of Gender Equality for U.S. Adolescents, published in 2018, and you can read the report online. Um, they surveyed 1,006 uh, youth, 1,001 of them were self-identified as either boys or girls, um, and the other five identified as gender non-binary. Um, so for the data about what boys think and what girls think, those five kids' data wasn't included. And I'm hoping that in the future, there'll be a larger sample of non-binary kids so that we can have a third group to look at. If kids don't identify as masculine or feminine, where do they fall on these questions about um, gender equality and identity? So 92% uh, of kids of all genders endorsed statements such as uh, women are just, or girls are just as smart as boys in the classroom, girl athletes are as talented as boy athletes, girls should have just as much opportunity for leadership as boys. So 92% endorsed those statements showing that they believe in the concept of equality. And yet 33% of young men feel compelled to suppress their feelings to suck it up and be a man when they're sad or scared, so they still feel pressure, a third of the boys still feel pressure to behave in a really traditional, narrow way. And 44% of the young men feel pressure to be willing to punch someone if provoked. What was really interesting to me was that there's a, the strongest correlation between two different questions was the correlation between saying that yes, they feel the need to be ready to punch someone if provoked, and yes, they spend time um, talking with other boys, um, making sexual comments and jokes that denigrate girls. 
So what this means is the more frequently boys are around other boys who make sexual jokes and comments, the more likely they are to feel pressure to be strong and ready for violence. So there's something about an atmosphere in which sexual degradation of girls is common that relates to an atmosphere in which boys feel pressured to behave aggressively. Peggy Ornstein has a piece in um, this month's Atlantic magazine, and she um, references this study and also talks about her own research. She has a book coming out this year on boys and sex. Um, I don't have time right now, but if you're interested, I can tell you a little bit about her premise, her work, and a quibble that I have with her work. So back to Tom Digby. These are the norms that he's identified for being a good warrior being tough, having faith in the masculine force, by which he means faith that being a warrior, being a tough guy who's willing to fight to resolve conflicts through combativeness is the way to, to be in the world. That, that's, where, that's how boys and men are taught to resolve problems. Um, a glorification of risk, competition, and violence. And this all requires the suppression of emotion. If you're feeling a lot of empathy for your adversary, or if you're afraid to fight, if you're allowing yourself to feel those emotions, you're not going to be a good warrior. And so boys are taught from an early age to suppress those feelings. I'm going to show this slam poetry performance by Guante, 10 responses to the phrase man up. There are some parts where he speaks a little quickly and it might be hard to understand every word. Don't worry about it. One of those parts, the part that was hardest for me to hear, he's talking about a supplement salesman by day who transforms into a superman, superhero by night. Um, if you really if it's important to you to hear all the words, I encourage you when you go home to listen to it again. You can just Google this 10 responses to the phrase man up or um, go to um, YouTube. And you can also YouTube 10 responses to the phrase man up lyrics and they will show you all the lyrics and you can listen while you're reading. So you can memorize it. Oh, it doesn't have my um, play. I always have AV problems when I speak at Golden Beer Talks. I'm, I jinx things, I think. While Don is figuring out the AV, I'm going to move forward to, um, oh, you got it? Nope, that's the other one. That's the next one. This is what I get for trying to be fancy. Ten responses to the phrase, man up. One, fuck you. Two, if you want to question my masculinity, like a schoolyard circle of curses, like a sword fight with lightsaber erections, save your breath, because 
Contrary to what you may believe, not every problem can be solved by growing a pair. You cannot arm wrestle your way out of chemical depression. The CEO of the company that just laid you off does not care how much you bench. And I promise there is no light beer in the universe, full-bodied enough to make you love yourself. Three. Oh, man up. Yeah, yeah, that's that new superhero, right? Mild-mannered supplement salesman Mark Manstrong says the magic words man up and then transforms into the five o'clock shadow. The massively muscled, deep-voiced, leather-duster-wearing Superman who defends the world from, I don't know, feelings. Four, of course, why fight to remove our chains when we can simply compare their lengths? Why step outside the box when the box has these badass flame decals on it? We men are cigarettes, dangerous and poisonous and stupid. Five, you ever notice how nobody ever says woman up? They just imply it. Because women and the women's movement figured out a long time ago that being directly, explicitly ordered around by commercials, magazines, and music is dehumanizing. When will men figure that out? Six, the phrase, man up, suggests that competence and perseverance are uniquely masculine traits. That women, not to mention any man who doesn't eat steak, drive a big truck, and have lots of sex with women are nothing. Nothing more than background characters, comic relief, props. More than anything, though, it suggests that to be yourself, whether you wear skinny jeans, or rock a little eyeliner, or drink some other brand of light beer, or write poetry will cost you seven. So how many boys have to kill themselves before this country acknowledges the problem? How many women have to be assaulted? How many trans people have to be murdered? We teach boys how to wear the skin of a man, but we also teach them how to raise that skin like a flag and draw blood for it. Eight. Boy babies. Get blue socks. Girl, babies get pink socks. What about purple? What about orange? What about green? What about cerulean, black, tie-dye, buffalo plaid, rainbow? I, nine, I want to be free to express myself. Man up. I want to have meaningful emotional relationships with my brothers. Man up. I want to be weak sometimes. Man up. I want to be strong in a way that isn't about physical power or dominance. Man up. I want to talk to my son about something other than sports. Man up. I want to be who I am. Man up. Ten. No. So let's talk for a minute about the myth of the gender binary. What do I mean about gender binary? I mean a whole lot of juxtapositions. Male, female, strong, weak, hard, soft, rational, emotional. We could go on and on and come up with a whole long list of dichotomous pairs of words to describe male versus female. Tom Digby says, you're either male or female. Boys can't behave like a girl or they'll be shamed for being on the wrong side of the gender binary. Referring to a girl or another boy as a wuss, a sissy, a pussy, or other derogatory words helps a boy feel more confident on his side of the binary by shaming people on the other side. Misogyny is embedded in the myth that Boys have to be hypermasculine and girls have to be hyperfeminine and nobody can meet in the middle. I like the term hypermasculinity instead of toxic masculinity because toxic masculinity has this implication that masculinity itself is toxic, which I don't think is true. But the over-amplified sort of masculinity on steroids that we seem to promote in our culture can be harmful to men as well as women. 
men don't learn how to process the full range of emotions. And I noticed on the slide I wrote softer feelings. Well, that's part of that binary, right? Like, why are those softer feelings or feminine feelings? Everybody feels scared. Everybody feels tender. Everybody feels love. But we've relegated a whole set of those feelings away from boys. Um, so when a man behaves in a hypermasculine way, he's killing off a whole range of his own human experience. Tom Digby says, to be female is to have a status that is deeply despised by boys and men. That's why misogyny is such an effective means of culturally policing their lives. Don, I have my next video. So now we're going to watch a different poem, a different slam poetry performance about the female side of this by Blythe Baird. It's called Pocket-Sized Feminism. And in case you're wondering when this was filmed, it was in 2016. So this experience that you're about to see is alive and well on college campuses. Pocket-Sized Feminism. The only other girl at the party is ranting about feminism. The audience a sea of rape jokes and snapbacks and styrofoam cups and me. They gawk at her mouth like it is a drain clogged with too many opinions. I shoot her an empathetic glance and say nothing. This house is for wallpaper women. What good is wallpaper that speaks? I want to stand up, but if I do, whose coffee table silence will these boys rest their feet on? These boys, I want to stand up, but if I do, what if someone takes my spot? I want to stand up, but if I do, what if everyone notices I've been sitting this whole time? I'm ashamed of keeping my feminism in my pocket until it is convenient not to, like at poetry slams or women's studies classes. There are days I want people to like me more than I want to change the world. Once, I forgave a predator because I was afraid to start drama in our friend group. Two weeks later, he assaulted someone else. I'm still carrying the guilt in my purse. There are days I forget we had to invent nail polish to change color and drugged drinks and apps to virtually walk us home and lipstick-shaped mace and underwear designed to prevent rape. Once, a man behind me on an escalator shoved his hand up my skirt from behind and no one around me said anything, so I didn't say anything because I didn't want to make a scene. Once, an adult man made a necklace out of his hands for me, and I still wake up in hot sweats, haunted with images of the herd of girls he assaulted after I didn't report. All younger than me. How am I to forgive myself for doing nothing in the mouth of trauma? Is silence not an act of violence, too? Once, I told a boy I was powerful, and he told me to mind my own business. Once, a boy accused me of practicing misandry. You think you can take over the world? And I said, no, I just want to see it. I just need to know it is there for someone. Once, my dad informed me sexism is, is, sexism is dead and reminded me to always carry pepper spray in the same breath. We accept this state of constant fear is just another component of being a girl. We text each other when we get home safe and it does not occur to us that not all of our guy friends have to do the same. You could literally, you could literally saw a woman in half and it would still be called a magic trick, wouldn't it? That's why you invited us here, isn't it? Because there is no show without a beautiful assistant. We are surrounded by boys who hang up our naked posters and fantasize about choking us and watch movies that we get murdered in. We are the daughters of men who warned us about the news and the missing girls on the milk carton in the sharp edge of the world. They begged us to be careful, to be safe, then told our brothers to go out and play. So it's really distressing to me that two full generations after the women's movement that's still the experience. Contemporary society programs women to be nurturing and caring and self-sacrificing and silent. Women's capacity to care about the suffering of, others, of ourselves and others is amplified, just as men's is suppressed. In order to be a good warrior, they can't think about the suffering of others. Women are taught to overvalue the emotions that men are taught to suppress. 53% of the girls in the 2018 Gender Attitudes Study rate physical attractiveness as the most important trait that society values in a girl. These are the same girls who said women should be leaders, they should be strong athletes, they're just as smart as men, but the most important thing is for a girl to be pretty.
Women are socialized to be afraid of our aggression, to be meek and mild. When I started to find my voice as a college student, I was an incredibly shy child, you can't tell now, but I wouldn't ask somebody in the grocery store where the strawberries were. In college, I found my voice and my grandmother said, Claire, you used to be so sweet. What happened? Fortunately, my grandfather was really into me being loud, so that was good. He's my champion. Women who behave assertively are called witch, bitch, ball breaker, drama queen, or other pejorative labels. Women acquiesce to male dominance for fear of violence or loss of status. I didn't advance my slide. I'm sorry. Okay, now I'm really lost. Um, for fear of violence, loss of status, and loss of economic security. Okay. So as Blythe Baird suggests in her poem, the fear of violence plays a large role in keeping women silently in our place on the other side of the gender binary. Despite the Me Too movement and similar movements, many women remain afraid to stand up or speak out. 76% of the girls in the 2018 youth study feel unsafe as a girl at least some of the time. This actually doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is that 24% of the girls don't feel unsafe at least some of the time. And I'm really, really intrigued about what is it about those girls? Is it geography? Is it their family life? Is it their athletic experience or something about the school they're attending? We need to find out about that 24% and see if we can reproduce whatever it is that leads those girls not to be afraid. So what can we do for the next generation to help little girls and little boys grow up to be full human beings with full access to their emotional lives? We need to support children in becoming who they are. To shame children for their play or their words or their feelings is unacceptable. We need to comfort little boys when they cry the same amount that we comfort little girls. We really coo to little girls when they cry, but little boys not so much. We, you know, we may comfort them for a minute, but then we say, you're okay, go on out. We need to praise boys' sensitivity and kindness as much as their courage and strength. And we need to encourage girls, in Megan Rapinoe's words, to believe in themselves, to be brave, to be bold, to be fierce. Until I saw this quote, I had never before seen the word fierce used in a positive way to describe a female. I'm interested in helping all of us rehearse responses to misogyny when we hear it. Rather than staying deer in the headlights silent on hearing or experiencing something sexist, sexist to men or women, what if we were each prepared with a clever, assertive, powerful, and yet kind and polite, the full spectrum, um, rejoinder? So I really invite all of you during the Q&A um, session to share your ideas of rejoinders, here are some of mine, to ask, not in a snarky way, but out of true curiosity, if somebody says something about what I can or can't do, or what a boy can or can't do, tell me more about why you would say that. Or, it's unfortunate that you want to fit me into a rigid box about feminine or masculine behavior, or, Dude, go home and watch 10 responses to the phrase man up. And then I want to tell you about some additional resources that I found um, interesting. Um, the movie Undefeated, how many people have watched this movie? Oh, wow, you guys. You have to all go home and watch Undefeated. Um, it's actually a movie that's 
supposed to be, it really is, more about racism. And when I first saw it, it's about a, a black football team that gets coached by a white coach um, and the difficulty that the team has in accepting this white coach at the beginning of the season. Um, and before I looked it up for this talk, I had thought that this documentary film was about 1970s because the racism was so overt. But it turns out that this film, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary in 2012, was about a 20, 2009 uh, season. And that was alarming to me. But that's not the reason I'm bringing it up here. The other thing that really struck me about this movie is towards the end, the black football star and the white football coach who had been extremely mistrusting of each other and rejecting of each other at the beginning of the season hug and they're crying, they're both crying, their tears running down their faces. And so here we have these warrior men who love each other and forgive each other and are crying and it's such a powerful moment in the film. Um, Listen to Tom Digby on men, masculinity, and heterosexual love on the Engendered podcast. The whole Engendered podcast series is interesting if you're interested in topics about gender. You can um, go to New York to watch the play What the Constitution Means to Me, or if you don't want to do that, you can read the manuscript. Um, it's about the racist, sexist, um, and uh, elitist foundations of our country. And until I saw that play, I didn't really realize how sexism and racism were written into the fabric of the Constitution. We have so much work to do politically and legally if we're going to change the way things are culturally. Um, and then Peggy Ornstein, who I mentioned earlier, has a book coming out called Boys and Sex. Um, it's coming out later this year. It's uh, the sequel to her 2016 book, Girls and Sex. It's based on her own research. Um, she um, is the cover story for the January-February issue of The Atlantic magazine. It has an article there called What It Means to Be a Man. And she also was interviewed in um, a January issue of The New York Times magazine. Those are all interesting additional resources. And um, thank you for listening. Claire's escaping. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Claire. That was great, and I'm sorry for the technical difficulties. Third talk, that won't happen, I'm sure. Okay, so we're going to take a break now. You can get some more drink and mill around, talk with folks. Um, I want to, before we break, I want to let you know the talk for March is going to be by Michael Kerwin. He's from the University of Denver, and the talk title is The Day When Cape Town Nearly Ran Out of Water. I think maybe many of you have heard of that um, situation in South Africa, the implications for drought and water supply in the Denver area. I'll right, take a break and we'll be back in a little bit for Q&A. Thank you.
Okay, everyone. So we have a microphone. If you have a question, it would be great if you came over to the microphone so that everybody in the room can hear the question and Claire can hear it as well. It's over here in the front corner. Claire, I'm going to let you call on people as they come. Thank you. So please don't be shy because I don't want to stand up here and have to, like, you know ad lib. Um, and so to, to start, you might think about your favorite response to a, a sexist um, comment or, or anything else. Yes. John, this is uh, my husband who's being so kind to ask me a question. That was, that was really <laughs> an incredible talk. And, <laughs> and you are an incredible person. <laughs> Stop. But that's not why I'm up here. I wanna ask you, so how do you think this would impact raising, so you're, you're talking about really raising boys and raising girls somewhat differently. And how would this impact raising particularly a trans child who you know, there are all these gender reveal parties that people have, and we don't know. I mean, we're, we're basing those on what genitals that the person is gonna be born with, but that's not really what their gender is about. And so you have a child who you start to raise as a girl, just say, and it turns out as they're a teenager and a uh, young adult that they say, you know, I've never really been a girl on the inside. I'm a guy. Um, and I hope you guys can help me deal with that. But how would you raise that? How does it impact raising that kind of person? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. So if, if you're raising a child who from an early age rejects the gender that they were assigned at birth. And, and this happens sometimes. Y you know, you gave an example of the child changing 
talking about this as a high school student, but there are very young children, you know, three, four, five-year-old little kids who say, no, I'm not a boy or a girl. And um, I mean, this is, the, I think this is now more, this is a different talk about how to be a parent to a trans child, but um, we need to, it, to, to get back to the idea about our gender norms with any child, including a trans child, you want to encourage the child to be who they are. We just really, I think psychological health, a big part of psychological health is being allowed to be fully yourself in all the expressions of yourself um, and not to be constrained by somebody's idea or society's idea about how you should behave as a girl or a boy. Another question? Can you use the mic, please? Uh, about a year ago, Scientific American, can you hear me? Can you yes. hear me? Can you hear me now? <laughs> uh, about a year ago. Really, really uh, kiss the mic. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Am I, am I on? Okay. Uh, last year, Scientific American did a whole issue on gender identification. And one of the things that stuck in my mind um, was a diagram. I'm sorry. <laughs> was a diagram that showed hypermale at one end, hyperfemale at the other. And there were a whole lot of biological aspects as well as psychological aspects and emotional aspects that made a spectrum between the two. So it's not just culture, it's, I mean, basically I think the previous, previous uh, question was sort of the same thing. It's, not, it's a lot, it's biology as well. And I guess I'd like your comments on it and how you think society is reacting to that. Any, anything you have to add to that would be interesting. Yes, so, th so there is biology for sure. I mean, men are men and they have more testosterone than women who have more estrogen than men. And there are some um, subtle brain differences too that may be dependent also on the hormonal differences. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying, oh, uh, we should all be androgynous, that men and women should be the same and girls and boys should be the same and there should be no such thing as gender. I'm just saying we need um, less restrictive gender roles. And nowadays, because of the generations of women who've come before, who've really loosened things up for women, right? I can wear pants, right? I, I don't have to ride a horse side saddle. I could go to medical school. Um, it's a little, there's, although there's still the fear of violence and the, the reality of violence, um, there is more latitude for women now than there is for men. Um, and, and I think we need to loosen that up. And I think if we loosen things up for boys and men, then some of the misogyny will um, fall away. Other questions or comments? Today, at, I'm Jim Dale. Uh, today at, at Town and Gown, we talked about the book Facts, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. And the first instinct within that book was uh, the gap instinct. And that's about, uh, we talk about extremes, and it could be hyper-masculinity and, and uh, hyper-femininity, if you would, but that most people are in the, more in the middle and it might be the spectrum that the gentleman's talked about, Article South Scientific American. But my perspective is that the acceptance of emotions and things over my lifetime have gradually changed a lot. And that I don't feel bad about crying about something. And I think there's a lot of uh, people who are thought of as macho guys that don't mind crying either. So I would suggest that if we use homosexuality as a model, and I'd like to have your comments on it, my children go, so what? And that's not the way I was raised, but 
things have gradually changed within this perspective of males and females that I think just, it's just gonna continue to be better and better. Maybe bad, but it's getting better, and that's one of Fackelman's statements. It's, it may be bad, but it's getting better. So would you speak to that, please? I agree. We are in the middle of an evolution, right? This is not, we're not at the starting point. Um, it, uh, I mean, a gay man is running for president. That is fabulous. <laughs> Regardless of who you're going to vote for, it's just like, can we just appreciate this? It's amazing. Um, so yes, ideas about masculinity and, what, and, and the sort of heterosexual imperative, those are evolving, which is wonderful. Um, I grew up in San Francisco. I didn't realize that there was anything wrong with being gay until I went to Philadelphia. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I also really wasn't treated differently as a girl growing up until I moved to Philadelphia. Um, so, so it's changing in pockets. And some parts of the country are more progressive than others. Some families are more progressive than others. Some religions are more progressive than others. I mean, so we're not all going at the same speed or in the same way. And, and we are somewhere in the middle, I have no, no where in the middle, because I don't know what the end point is. Um, and it's exciting, but um, I guess I don't want to relax and think, oh, okay, well, it's taking care of itself. I want us to be part of this ongoing evolution to help shape it. And I think what was so frightening um, about the 2016 election process, and I don't mean to get too political here, but um, was that the Access Hollywood tapes and that kind of material was not considered shameful by a segment of the population. That's moving in the wrong direction. We, and that's not acceptable to me. Thank you. Uh, in, in relationship to having a transgender child, um, those who watch the news tonight watch Dwayne Wade, a retired basketball player you probably all maybe know about. His son decided to become a female, and he was on the TV with the daughter being very accepting and very loving of this child. Um, so that, that I found to be very interesting. This is a basketball player, you know, they're supposed to be pretty uh, macho, but uh, the, the other thing that, that uh, has meaning for me is it, it, there's no real difference raising a, a male or female child. It's how you tune into that child and, and respecting their feelings and their emotions. Uh, we have a grandson who is a very strong, outgoing, late teenager, but he can be tender as he can be because his parents accept him where he is with those emotions. So I think there's a lot to be said in this area of the parenting and how they're accepting of the, the feelings of the child. Said like a true psychiatrist, it's Leon Oxman. <laughs> so, of course, I agree with Leon that, that a lot of it has to do with the family life and, um, and how you're treated as a child and whether it's okay for you to be a full human being. I guess I would say also, though, that reading Peggy Orenstein's piece in The Atlantic, um, that um, in her interviews with young men, um, there's more than just the home life. There's also the school life and the peer pressure. And so boys have, she, she, one thing that she does really beautifully in that article and in her work is she, she shows us the um, dichotomous um, feelings and impulses within the boys that on the one hand they want to be good men, kind to women, not violent, um, to be respectful. And on the other hand, they want to be accepted by their peers, and they know there's a certain set of behaviors that's, that are required 
for acceptance, and they feel a lot of conflict about that. I was interested in the study of the 1006, whatever it was, adolescents, and I'm wondering if you know more about how they were asked to respond about gender and how they let um, the, the researcher know that they were non-binary. Um, do you have more information about that? It was a questionnaire-based study. It wasn't an interview. Mm -hmm. So they just had, you know, you can respond male, female, or um, non-binary on the, yeah. None of the above, okay. Yeah. So did they go into any of that in more detail? Or um, in the report, they didn't. They just said that they took out the um, five or whatever number it was oh. of the non-binary kids for the most of the data analysis because they, oh. it wasn't a large enough sample oh, to okay. give any statistical yeah. significance. All right. yeah. That just seemed so different than it certainly would have been when I was that age. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't have even questioned about that. Right, so talk about society moving quickly. Yeah. I mean, that you would even include non-binary now on the list of choices. This is another thing that's happening in fits and starts and unevenly across the country. It's some jobs you can apply to and there's a third option. Or um, if you're signing up on um, some of the dating sites, there's a third option, or on Facebook, but on other, in other places, it's only binary. There's only a choice, male or female, which creates a problem for some individuals. Yeah. Yeah. It, the issue of, of binaries has come up in Olympic sports. Do you have any comments about that? It seems to be opening a real can of worms. In other words, you've probably heard about it and seen some of the press about it. So how, how do we deal with that? Yeah, so the question about uh, trans athletes is, I'm not prepared to give <laughs> an answer to that. That's really tricky. That is, that is a really tricky one because um, hmm, I, I, could, I could debate both sides of that argument about um, physical advantages um, that trans women have in terms of their size and bone structure and, um, and yet if they want to compete as women, mm, I also feel like, I, I don't know, I don't, have, I don't have that one figured out. I have a question, and I think you answered part of it. Um, when you have children, what, whatever their known sex or not, I'm not getting into that, but if you base it on kindness, that starts the picture of how to treat anyone. But what you're saying is that once the child perhaps has been given that warmth towards others or sympathy or empathy, when they reach school, the other students may not have that. And then they have the conflict of a little child, particularly, how do I be kind and also be accepted if, the, if it's a more raucous kind of environment? And that might be part of the question of how the uh, school environment can encourage kindness. And you hear it every once in a while in a very you know, kind of strange mode, but I don't know. A, many people read we we happened to must have been in a golden uh, bulletin of some sort about the child who was in the high school who was um, I guess writing graffiti that kind of said how depressed they were and then the whole school started putting little notes up to encourage that person well that's their way of handling unhappiness or, or their peers, and it might be something to help young people learn how to expand their own, um, their own understanding of what kindness is to other children. I don't know, but that's a project. I'm not saying that's easy, because they're children. 
I think it's a really important project, and I think that in order to make room for um, more of a curriculum about being human and, and how one behaves in society, we need to get rid of so much time wasted with testing. Yes. Uh, you know, t taking a look at uh, the humanity aspect of what's coming up this year, since we're in a debate year, if you were a uh, PhD graduate from Mines, and uh, your degree was uh, in uh, mechanical engineering, you had been on the tiny house team, which just won uh, the uh, solar decathlon Africa, led by two ladies, all right? And you were on the stage at the debates at the highest level. How would you perform to be not fighting against misogyny, but fighting against the will of the people of the country. Oh, okay, wait, 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 don't go away because I wanna be sure that I understand your question. Yeah. So, I, so you're, words, you're putting me in, a, in the presidential debates? Uh, yes, yes, and if, you, if you were in a near presidential debate, not, let's not say pres presidential, right. if you were in a near one, uh -huh. how would you perform versus what you've seen in the past right. that might improve the overall character of women at the highest level? Okay, thank you, I understand your question. So th that's an interesting question. And um, I have to say that in some of the earlier debates, the candidates, male and female, were very civil towards each other. Um, uh, they, they were polite, they weren't taking down each other so much, there weren't so many digs. Um, and so of course that would be the way I would wanna behave if I were in a debate would be presenting my ideas and being respectful of other people's ideas, um, which is really how I want to respond to misogyny as well, like with curiosity, like, well, what would make you say something like that? Why, why do you think that, I don't know, whatever, a woman can't be president? Like, I'm just so curious, rather than tearing somebody apart for saying something that was offensive to me. Am I answering your question? Okay. It is hard for me to picture myself being there because I am so not a politician. <laughs> um, uh, but, but I actually think like I would want to be like Obama was or like um, or like uh, Cory Booker was. I felt both of them um, debated with a kind of an elegance and a grace and uh, not a kind of cutthroat, uh, I'm gonna tear my opponent apart way of being. Um, and they're both men. You're welcome, thank you for the question. your very own t-shirt. All right, thank you everybody. Enjoyed uh, the questions and discussion and we'll see you next month. Bye.